Would you please open your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? First Corinthians chapter 11, whether it's your actual Bible or your phone, I encourage you to open your own copy of God's word and to keep it open. This morning, I come with a very full heart this weekend, Friday evening and all day yesterday, me, Pastor Chris, a number of elders and some few close friends had a conference down in Portland, very short, uh, to think well, to think theologically, to think about how to lead God's church. And I was just so encouraged by the teaching, by, by seeing some of my friends from, you know, the kingdom of God that I've met along the way, either at Bible college or other pastors that I know. And to have the fellowship with the fellow elders of this church who I just want to encourage you to, to have you know that the elders of your church desire to think well, to lead God's church in a healthy way, a theologically robust way, in a way that, that shows love and care for all of you. And so I'm very grateful that as a church we were able to send the elders to do that. And so it's a joy to be here with you, to have all those thoughts in my mind, to have that fullness. And so as we begin, let us pray, asking for God's help. Oh, Father, we thank you so much, God, that you have gathered us together here, the local gathering here at Hope Community Church. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes that we may see wondrous things from your word. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Rules and protocols for meeting a member of the royal family. When addressing or approaching the queen, address her as your majesty. Then, ma'am. Do not touch the queen. Do not offer to shake the queen's hand unless she extends her hand first. When she does extend her hand, do not grip it tightly or pump. Her royal highness push off means that she is done shaking hands with you. Always stand when the queen enters the room and never turn your back on her. Never walk in front of her. And when you're eating with the queen, you start eating when she starts eating and you stop eating when she stops eating. When speaking to any member of the royal family, do not stand too close to them. Do not make small talk. Never ask them personal questions. In fact, research what that particular member likes to talk about. And if you are ever in doubt about what to do or how to behave, Watch the person next to you or follow their lead, especially if it is the queen. Now, I promise this is not some sort of setup of how I want to be treated when I <laughs> potentially become the next lead pastor. 
But these are just a few of the rules and protocols I found online helping Americans know how to properly act if they are ever received the honor of having any ability to meet someone from the British royal family. You know, as Americans, we, we kind of balk at these protocols and in many ways find them over the top. You know, there's a lot of pomp and ceremony that goes to all of this and we can sort of hear all those with cringe and we tend to maybe look through that whole institution as maybe just seeing adults playing dress up. Yet at the same time, I think we as Americans show our hand in that as Americans, we have a harder time of appreciating and having respect for the things in life that have more reverence, that bring a sense of the transcendent. I'm not saying that we must appreciate another country's monarchy to be a reverent people, but it does seem like Americans, and, and maybe as our society as a whole, has this idea of sacredness and reverence just falling by the wayside. I mean, I think the most I can maybe see this in our country is if you go to a ball game, you're asked to stand and take off your hats before the national anthem. And that's kind of sort of the ethos of America. The, the quick hustle and bustle, function over form, highly prized individualism, in which we are all somewhat, especially on the West Coast, more naturally suspicious to those who are in authority. It's been commonly recorded that institutions in America are on the decline. And so this is kind of like the cultural glasses that we wear as Americans. This expressive individualism, this type of casual relationships with everyone, and it's the type of lenses that we actually bring in to the church. This type of fast-paced consumerism in which churches just become another form of, is this church meeting the religious consumeristic needs that I have? And as long as you're meeting those consumeristic needs or my religious palate, I, I'm committed, I am in. But have no fear, have no stress, that if your church begins to waver or not give you the product that you desire, just find another church. Almost as if we discard churches like we are upgrading our phone carrier or getting a new insurance plan. A little bit of a hassle, but worth the work. At times, I think we all can approach church far too casually, in a very uncommitted fashion, in a type of non-reverent respect for what we are actually doing. In our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, however, wants us to know that when the church gathers together, something profound is happening. It's not a performance. It's not like going to the movies or a concert. But the gathering of the body is profoundly spiritual. And Paul would say it actually stands in the center of our lives and it should stand at the center of our week. 
Paul says when you come and you gather together, and especially when you come and gather and you celebrate the Lord's table, you need to take off those cultural glasses for a second. This casual, superficial, fast food approach to life and recognize that when we are gathering, it has profound and eternal consequences. If you remember from last week, we are in this discussion about how Paul is really deriding the Corinthians for their abuses at the Lord's table. That they are discriminating against poor members in the congregation. And, and Paul's point, if you remember last week, was simply that, that what we proclaim at the Lord's Supper must be demonstrated in our lives. And so if the Lord's Supper is proclaiming a message in which Jesus Christ came into this world and he sacrificially gave his life for others, if Jesus is willing to shed his blood for his enemies, and yet you Corinthians proclaim that message and you eat, but yet what you demonstrate is divisions and factions that you have taken the whole meal and you have reversed it. You have, you have made it something other than the Lord's Supper, Paul would say. And so this morning, Paul is kind of finishing this discussion about these abuses of the Lord's Supper. And he is concerned about their casual or their own Greco-Roman way of thinking as they approach the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And so let's consider the passage now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul's point in this passage is this, that out of reverence for the Lord, we are to approach this table, the Lord's table, in a worthy manner. Again, we as Americans struggle with this idea of reverence, with awe, with the transcendent. You're staring at an ordinary looking person in an ordinary room on a day where it can't decide if it's snowing or raining. Yet Paul is saying, this meal is not like any meal you take. It's not like we eat this meal and then we go to Panda Express for lunch afterwards. 
When we remember the Lord, remember who he is, we, we approach this table out of, out of reverence and we, we do so in a worthy manner. And so this sermon, Paul is going to help us see what does it actually look like to approach the table in a worthy manner. And I'd like to give us three ways of how we can approach the Lord's table in a worthy manner. And my first point is this. That in order to approach the Lord's table in a worthy manner, we must approach with examined hearts, with examined hearts. And we'll see this in verses 27 and 28. Do me a favor, look back down at your Bible. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And I'll explain that verse in a second. But look what Paul says here in verse 28. Therefore, let a person examine himself. So Paul is concerned that these Corinthian believers are not approaching the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, and therefore the imperative, the command, is you ought to examine yourself. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, or most of you in this room, I'm assuming, have been Christians for a long time, you have heard it been said that before we come to the Lord's Supper, we should examine ourselves. My question is this, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? And I want to just briefly kind of just say, one, what that doesn't look like. What is, it look not, what is Paul not saying when he says, examine yourself? And then secondly, I want to say, what is he actually saying we should do? Because my entire life, I've come to this table and I've heard wise men, pastors, elders say, let's take a moment. And usually it's like, they say they're going to give us a minute and it's like 15 seconds to examine ourselves what do we mean by that? Well, first, what Paul doesn't mean is, is what for many years most people have, I think, intuitively thought. That we are to have this sort of self-introspection, this subjective type of judgment upon ourselves in which we try to think back the last couple of days, the last week, and we, we kind of are asking ourselves, okay, what sins have I done? And, you know, I said some things this week that I shouldn't do, and I, I looked at some things I shouldn't have looked at, and I might have fudged on my taxes a little bit, and, uh, man, I was really lazy at work on Thursday, um, and we, we kind of maybe just build up a lot of this shame and guilt. And some of us may, may, may come to that conclusion and say, you know, I've had a really bad week. I'm not worthy to come to the Lord's table. And we read Paul's words right here. Right? Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning and he says, Paul says right there, in an unworthy manner, and we kind of think to ourselves the self-introspection, well, man, I've had a bad week, I'm not worthy. And we let the, the elements pass by us, or maybe in our church we don't come forward. Now, I, I think a lot of this confusion actually comes from a bad translation from the King James Version of the Bible. Now, if you're reading King James, I'm not trying to make any discriminations. Paul's against discriminations. However, do me a favor. I'm reading from the ESV. Look carefully at what Paul says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, not to get overly technical, but this Greek adjective 
You know, it should be seen as an adjective of manner. So Paul is not saying, as the King James Version would translate, unworthily. Paul is not saying that if you are unworthy, you cannot come to this table. He's saying don't do it in a way that's unworthy. And that's a very important observation because, again, so many Christians, I think for a long time, have interpreted these words as, well, I didn't really have a good week, I'm unworthy, I'm not going to come to the table. So I just want to say, if you have ever felt that way, you come to the table and you're about to take the elements and you, man, you're just like, I, I am unworthy to take this. Here's what I want to say. Good. I'm glad you feel that way. Being unworthy is the only prerequisite of taking this meal. None of us, guilty sinners as we are, are worthy to come to the Lord's table. We were his enemies. Being unworthy is really the definition of being a Christian. No, consider what the Heidelberg Catechism says when it tries to ask this question of who should come to this table. So question 81, Heidelberg Catechism. Who should come to the Lord's table? Answer, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that the remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. You see, this table, communion, the Lord's Supper, it is for a special group of people. It is for repentant believers. A good friend of mine, Pastor Chris, he's always quoting Sinclair Ferguson and this this one little line that Sinclair Ferguson says, in communion, You do not get a better Christ. Kind of saying, you know, preaching, we we preach and proclaim Christ. You receive Christ through the the preaching of God's word. You also receive Christ in communion. So he's saying, in, in communion, you do not get a better Christ, but you may sometimes get the same Christ better. You see, when you come to this table and you feel your sin, and you know you're undeserving, and yet you eat that bread and you drink that wine, you are proclaiming, this blood covers my sin. So examining yourself in this introspection, self-subjective, I shouldn't take it because I'm not worthy, is not what Paul means when he says examine yourself. So what does he mean? I think for Paul, self-examination requires more than just focusing on yourself. You see, remember the the context. The, The Corinthians are eating unworthily in an unworthy manner by blatantly mistreating the poor among them. That's what the context, back earlier in chapter 11. Their their actions towards the poor contradict the self-giving love celebrated in the supper. Hence, in fact, what, what, what the Corinthians are doing is they're making a mockery that if Christ's blood and broken body 
was poured out for all of these poor members, but yet you treat these poor members like second-class citizens, you are actually making the Lord's work look foolish. So look, look, look down at your Bible, verse 27. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, now what Paul is saying here is if you mistreat the body of Christ, which is the church, is your fellow members, if you mistreat them, what you are in actuality doing is aligning yourself with those who crucified our Lord. You stand with Judas, who ate the last supper with Jesus, but then who immediately left and betrayed Christ. You stand with the Roman soldiers who hung Jesus to a tree when... You show no regard and love and care for those whom Christ died for. So Paul says in many ways, if you abuse this table, you are actually making yourself liable for Jesus' death. And so this is very serious to Paul. There's nothing casual about what is happening. And so the reference to participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner must be understood in light of the abuses happening in Corinth. Humiliating others. So to drink and to eat in an unworthy manner is to drink and eat in a way that demeans, that humiliates or disrespects other members in the community of God's household. So to maybe say a little bit more clearly, to examine oneself before the Lord's Supper means to examine one's compliance with the covenant of Christ's blood as reflected in the ways of relating to other members. I need to discern how have I been treating my fellow brothers and sisters. So do me a favor, keep your finger on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, turn to the left to Matthew chapter 5. Let's just briefly read some of Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Now, we rightly interpret this passage after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but let's, let's consider the passage briefly. Verse 21, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, listen very carefully, verse 23. So... If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So like I mentioned, many Christians have rightly interpreted this passage. There's no more altar Jesus has been the once true for all sacrifice, for all sins. But Christians now have taken this passage to understand that before we come to communion in the Lord's table, 
that if I have any outstanding debt of sin with a fellow brother or sister, I need to reconcile with them before I eat of this table. Examining yourself and coming to the table in a worthy manner means that if you are guilty of sinning against members in your church, you are to repent and to reconcile with them before you come and eat. What makes communion a denial of the cross rather than a celebration of the cross is any refusal to be reconciled, to seek forgiveness, or to forgive. And all of this, I think, means that if you are married to someone who's a Christian, you should reconcile before you eat at this table. If you have children who are believers, and there's ongoing conflict and tension, you need to reconcile and forgive before you eat at this table. Or if there's maybe hurts or frustrations or conflict within the relationships you have here in the body, you're to seek forgiveness. And so just think, think for a second. Imagine your parents said, no one's eating dinner until we all deal with our problems. We're gonna sit here as long as we can until we f- settle this and bury the hatchet and then we will eat. You see, the Lord desires for his church to live in peace and love and unity and harmony. And what Christ has done is he has sown into the very fabric of his church a meal in which for our church once a month or for as often as you partake it, you are practicing this examination of, do I need to go ask for forgiveness? Do I need to let this bitterness go? And so just practically speaking, some application here, one of the reasons why our church practices or celebrates the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month is for you to prepare for it. It's for you to plan and to expect that is the day our church will be celebrating this meal of unity. It gives us time to prepare. Do I need to actually go and do some of these things? So if if I can just maybe add, if we try just to do examination of our lives and our hearts, the 10 seconds before we partake of the elements, I I think we're maybe losing a little bit of what Paul is calling us to. And so I I know that earlier in this point, I made the point that, you know, even if you feel unworthy, come and take of the table. And I know that what I'm about to say may seem counterintuitive to those points earlier However, I need to say that pastorally, I want to discourage some of you from partaking of the Lord's Supper if you have unresolved sin, bitterness towards another believer, if you have ongoing relational conflict that is not resolved in a healthy way, I I would pastorally encourage you to let the elements pass because this table is for repentant believers. We should not come to this table celebrating, claiming, and cherishing the forgiveness of God while not forgiving others also. 
So don't come when you are divided with brothers or sisters over some secondary, non-essential matter. So yes, by all means, confess unrepentant sin. That's something we should do every day. But examine your heart and see if there's any way in which you need to reconcile with someone in the body of Christ. So that's what it means to examine ourselves. So that's how we approach in a worthy manner. We examine our relationships. We confess any sin. Secondly, Paul would say, though, that we are to approach with reverent hearts. So if you look back down at verse 29, Paul says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, now I'll just tell you my interpretation right now. The body, I think right there, is referring to the body of Christ. It's the church. But whoever does this eating and drinking without remembering the, the body of Christ eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have fallen asleep or Paul says some have died. Now, for us modern readers, this is a hard passage to swallow. We, we don't like to think of God as someone who is giving us bad things or, or judging us. But, but, but Paul here is really kind of showing us that, that by coming to this table in a very casual manner, in a, in a manner where we're wearing our own cultural glasses, or we're kind of just thinking about ourselves. You know, last week I made the point, don't, don't take the Lord's Supper with eyes closed. It's not, it's not you and Jesus. It's a unity family meal in which we look around and so Paul says, if you actually just come to this meal and kind of casual about it, not thinking about it, you're actually putting yourself in peril. And he makes this startling connection in verse 30. He says, in fact, Corinthians, the reason why a lot of you are sick and ill and the reason why some of you have died is because the Lord is judging you because of your abuses at this table. Now, full stop for a second. Doesn't that just give you a hint of how important this meal is? Now, I don't want to scare us, and everyone's going to be afraid to take the, the cup this morning. So what's going on here? The idea of God bringing temporal judgments, really, it flies in the face of our common perception that most Americans have of God. Most people, if they believe in a God, tend to think that God is just a loving God and that since God is loving, he's only going to do good things for me. Now, if you are a Christian, everything I just said is true. God is loving. God only wants to do loving things for you. However, the challenge is how do we interpret loving things for me as? You see, we, we tend to interpret that as God is loving, therefore he's going to give me the good circumstances that I want. Sometimes, I, maybe I've used this illustration before, so I apologize if I'm being repetitive, but we, we can kind of think of God a little bit like cat and dog theology. You know, I leave my dog at home alone during the workday, and there's sometimes we're doing things, and we let her outside in the morning, and we come home late at night, and you know, it's been 12 hours, haven't talked to the dog, kids probably forgot to feed her, give her water, poor dog, don't call animal services on me or anything. But even though we ignored her for the whole day and she was in the dark, 
Man, that dog is so excited to see us, wagging the tail. And we can sometimes think that God is like that. We never really talk to him. We kind of avoid him. But if we're in a bind, God's like, I'm just so happy you're talking to me today. It doesn't matter what you did. You could have left me in the car for a whole day. I'm still your best pal. Or we can kind of think that God is like a cat, very like moody and maybe I'll answer you. Sometimes I won't. Kind of mysterious. Never had a cat or a dog guy. But we develop these concepts of God that like, well, God's not answering my prayers. He's kind of like the cat and mysterious and maybe some days he's warm and affectionate, other days he's not. Or God's like a dog that doesn't matter if you ignore him or don't do anything, he's just gonna be excited to see you. Wow, he came to church today, I'm so excited. But yeah, we read here that God is a God of judges people. And sometimes as Christians, we, we read these stories in the book of Acts where God strikes down dead Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. Or God kills people in Corinth for abusing the Lord's Supper, and we think, God doesn't do that today. Yet the author of Hebrews is pretty clear, Jesus Christ yesterday, today, the same forever. So how do we make sense of these temporal judgments? Is this God just like this moody God? Sometimes he's really loving, but then if you kind of test his patience, he's like the parent who blows up and yells and screams and makes people sick. Look what Paul says, though. We have to read the Bible, right? Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, in essence, if we would have examined ourselves and approached this table in a worthy manner, Paul says we are disciplined. Why are we disciplined? so that we may not be condemned along with the world. No, God's temporal judgment to these Corinthian believers was an act of his mercy, of his kindness. That God is setting up discipline. God disciplines those whom he loves. We need to understand this as a loving discipline. That if we do not get discipline from our parents, we grow up to be unlicensed, unruly adults. And so it is within the church. This is exactly what, when we practice church discipline in our church, it is not a way to make the person who's in sin put on the dunce hat, shame them with guilt. And, but really, it's, it's a rescue mission. All discipline is really trying to help a person avoid a far greater judgment as Paul would say, the judgment that the world is getting. And so God, in his great grace, has given this temporal, this temporary judgment in order to spare them from a greater judgment. All of this to say, if you had the flu in January, I don't think it's really wise to think, well, I probably came to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. At the same time, I do think we need to remember that if we do get sick, if we do die, it's not good to assign an actual, this is the reason. But sometimes the Lord does do these things. But we need to be convinced that whatever the Lord brings into our lives is because he loves us. And at times he will discipline us. In Chronicles of Narnia, um, C.S. Lewis wrote the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. 
And there's this famous character in the story, this lion, Aslan, he's the, the Christ figure and, and Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, little Lucy wants to pet Aslan. Nice lion. You know, the, the character Mr. Tumnus says, oh, he's not a tame lion, but he is safe. And so it is with us modern Americans, you know, this type of casual Christianity. I come in with my Starbucks and, you know, we sing a few rock concert songs and I'm probably being more critical than I need to be right now, but, but we have this very casual approach to, to the Lord. Sometimes you can feel like there's no real reverence or awe. Consider, consider what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. See, one of the reasons why Christians historically have attempted to guard the table and by guard the table, I mean another term we use is fence the table. It's because of this passage that we don't want people who are approaching this table who shouldn't be approaching this table. We don't want them to drink condemnation and judgment on themselves. And so this is why historically Christians have always believed that this table is a, a demarcation. There is a line only certain people should take this meal. Unbelievers are, are welcome to come to the public services to hear the reading and the preaching of God's word. Yet when it comes to the Lord's table, this is not a welcome invitation for everyone. Christians along all traditions and denominations have always historically understood that those who should take communion are those who have first made their public profession of faith in Christ through the waters of baptism. This is why sometimes that word baptism is used in our common vernacular as another word for entrance. Your entrance into the body of Christ should not be seen in the covenantal renewal of this meal, but through the once for all, one time, one baptism, baptism of the water. You see, I think sometimes as maybe a more pragmatic American evangelicalism, we, we forget that church membership, baptism, the Lord's Supper, church discipline, how all of these things really play together to help protect the gospel. You see, you, we must remember that in baptism, what is happening? The one is becoming part of the many. The one individual Christian who's getting baptized is, is kind of saying, the church is saying, oh, nations of the earth, this person belongs to Christ and his body. But what is communicated at communion? The many become one. And so I, I, I know what it's like being a pastor to Americans. I might be stepping on some toes right now. I'm not trying to make enemies unnecessarily, but I just want to say pastorally, very sensitively, with grace and love, 
If you are someone who takes the Lord's Supper, but you have not been baptized, oh, dear brother and sister, I really want to encourage you to get baptized. Any argument that someone makes as to why they should take communion is really an argument of why they should be baptized. And so guarding the table is not some unwelcoming, mean-spirited thing. It's a way to protect the gospel, to protect that person, that we may come to God in the way that he has ordered his church with reverence and awe. And so lastly, Paul says, not only should we come with reverent hearts, but we should come with loving hearts. Verse 33, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And apparently Paul had other things to say that we'll never know. But Paul here is really kind of summarizing the practical advice now. In light of all what he's saying about if you, if you come to this table in an unworthy manner, that's why God is judging you. Talks about the, the discrimination between the haves and the have-nots. But now he says wait. And, and it's maybe tempting to kind of think that Paul is just giving some kind of temporal timing of, you know, um, sometimes I get home late from work and my family already started eating and I say, hey, wait for me to show up. That's that's not quite what Paul is getting at here. Really, the idea is welcome one another. Love one another. Be hospitable to one another. And so it's better to see that Paul's annoyance of them, of them not welcoming the whole body, of having this type of mutuality, love, care, and concern for each of the members of the church. And so For us, I think what this means is that if we come to church, if if you come to this gathering, I want to be careful, church is not just this building. If you come to this gathering of these believers with no concern to welcome those in the Lord, to go out of your way to show loving care and unity for one another, if, if, if that's how you come to church and then you come to this table, you're missing what this whole supper is about. And so when we come with loving hearts to maybe interpret what Paul is saying here, we remember that just as Christ broke his body and shed his blood, we too are to live lives of sacrificial love and concern for one another. This is why the Lord's Supper is a time to reflect how Christ has loved us, how he has shown hospitality, how he provided for others. This is what Christ did. And this is what we are to remember. We too should be asking ourselves as we hold these elements, what burden can I help carry for another person here? How can I encourage someone before they leave? Where can I build relationships with fellow members of Christ's body that I don't know as well? Where can I use my riches, my strengths, and my gifts in a way to benefit others in the way that Christ did by living not selfishly, 
but for the sake and the benefits of building up other people. You see, in many ways, the household of faith should feel a lot like a family. For some of you, that's hard. You're thinking, that's good and all, Aaron. I come to this church, though, and no one talks to me. People don't remember my name. I might look at other people and they like, that's fine and well for them. So I think the real family talk for a second here, how are we doing at these things? How well do we let this table shape us? And showing this type of sacrificial love, care, and concern. My encouragement is to come early, stay late, show hospitality, come to the core classes, attend regularly. If you have control over your vacation schedule, don't miss the Lord's Supper. It happens the same time every month, the first Sunday of the month. And by God's grace, week after week, month after month, it feels like a family and we grow together. Consider these words from our church's membership covenant. These are, these are the words that we commit to doing when we become a member of this church. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian compassion and feeling and courtesy and speech. We will contribute joyfully and generously to the ministry of our church, the relief of church members in need. We will endeavor to serve the church with our time and talent. And so members of Hope Community Church, may we never be so short-sighted to eat and to drink this meal, proclaiming the wonderful and exuberant love that God has for us in Christ and yet be guilty of not showing the same love to others. Historically, this is why, although we don't do it anymore, on the, the days that we practice and celebrate the Lord's Supper, we would have an assistance fund offering. We still have that assistance fund. Please don't forget about it. But it's because when we are coming together as the body, we want to be aware of are there members in need? It's like I mentioned yesterday, I was with some pastors and it was rich and it was wonderful and it was good. And, and one of the pastors was speaking, maybe giving an offhand comment. And he kind of encouraged the rest of us pastors he said, stop calling the thing that you preach on a stage. The people who help us by playing their musical gifts, it's not a band. This is not a sanctuary. You're not gathered here to see just some guy who has his MDiv show his knowledge about the Bible. This is not going to the movies. This is the gathering of the body of Christ 
So we come with a reverence. We understand that this body gives expression to my membership of the universal church of the saints above and the saints below. And so friends here, Hope Community Church, whether we gather on any other Lord's Day or on the days we practice the Lord's Supper, may out of reverence for the Lord, we come with examined hearts. Hearts of reverence that are shown in hearts of love. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry of the word. As we now approach the table, be with us. Help us, Lord, to not be like the man who hears the word and and does nothing with it. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.